Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Dave Karen started his career at CBRE in 2012 after being a professional poker player where he was ranked as one of the top 100 online tournament players in the world for a time. Since then, Dave has become a thought leader within the commercial real estate industry with global recognition. He is an avid content creator on LinkedIn who is highly respected by his peers and has received over 1 million views in 2020 alone. Working alongside his team, Dave focuses on working with high-growth companies in the tech sector, space-as-a-service operators, and with financial services firms on a local, national, and global level. Dave also leads a partnership with Deloitte on their Technology Fast 50 program, advising many of Canada's fastest-growing technology companies on their real estate requirements. He is also the co-founder of CBRE Forward, a platform designed to showcase the fastest-growing tech companies in Canada. So welcome, Dave. Really uh, happy to have you uh, join me today on the Let's Get Real podcast. Before we begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Dave Cairns. I'm an office leasing agent from downtown Toronto, although recently uh, relocated. Um, I'm ironically a remote worker now, someone who helps companies rent offices, big and small, nationwide, throughout the world. Um, I've decided that uh, it's best for my family and, and for me personally to, to move out east. Um, so that's that's me sort of in a nutshell right now in the moment. Uh, prior to getting involved in real estate, I was a professional poker player for probably five years, like straight up as a professional poker player. And then like casually before that throughout high school. Um, it's interesting to be in the real estate industry and now draw on my experience as a poker player. Because what I've realized is that I, I lived in this like digital first and asynchronous world um, prior to getting into the real estate industry. And I kind of shut that part of myself off for probably, I don't know, seven, eight years before the pandemic kind of hit. And then as the pandemic has hit, I decided, um, you know, rather than cold calling customers about office space, something that they could probably give two shits about for a lot of different reasons, uh, why don't I sort of publicly journal my thoughts and see how they evolve? And so that's actually what I've been doing since the pandemic, aside from obviously my day job and helping companies, you know, continue to deal with real estate requirements. But I've become very vocal, very active on uh, on social media, talking about the future of work, future of real estate and, and things like that. And um I think I make some people's like veins pop out of their foreheads and other people I think are, are very much uh, supporting my message. So uh, it's been an interesting experience since the pandemic uh, happened. So curious, how did you go from playing poker to wanting to be in real estate? Well, truthfully, truthfully I was very lost at the point of leaving the poker world. Um, I left poker as a result of this event that took place called Black Friday which was a day where the United States government indicted the two largest online poker websites for tax evasion, money laundering and wire fraud and a whole lack of charges. Um, I was already becoming disenchanted with the lifestyle 
probably more so than the game itself. And so I just sort of took that as a sign from the universe that perhaps this big event in the poker world was maybe time for me to pay attention to move on. Um, so that's what I did, but I was, you know, kind of treading water for at least 12 months. I, I took a sales job at like this sort of bucket shop company with several of my friends from high school and university that didn't pan out very well in part, actually, because I started to blow the whistle on some stuff that was going on at the company for not unlike what I'm doing on social media today. Um, <laughs> thankfully, Seabury supports me in what I say. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I kind of like left that job and was sort of just floundering around. And I, I was fortunate to have some friends and family that were in the real estate industry. And they were kind of all expressing to me that they thought that the brokerage side of the business might be well suited to my background and experience and personality, given that it's a 100% commissioned environment. And, you know, I, I had good interpersonal skills and that kind of thing. So I really honestly just took a bit of a leap of faith. Um, I feel very fortunate that I was able to land at CBRE, um, which even with connections to CBRE is difficult to do. <laughs> But uh, I, I couldn't be happier to have kind of built my career at that company, at the, at the company I'm at now. Um, I think that it's the best platform and it's been able to really allow me to kind of spread my wings. And, uh, you know, having the voice that I have with, you know, the brand of CBRE behind me, it's certainly not hurting me. So I feel I feel good about that. Yeah, and I, I concur with, you know, what you're saying with respect to having the support of the company behind you, because, I think it's, first of all, it's great that you do have, you know, CBRE support. Um, you are obviously very active on social media because that's how you and I connected. Um, mm. But, you know, and the fact that you are very vocal about sort of your thoughts and your ideas, you do have a voice, you have an opinion. And, you know, truth be told, I was actually inspired by you like that. Mm. Just watching what you were doing and kind of how, you know, you took a position, you sort of were very strong in your beliefs. And I was always kind of more the observer of, or the consumer of social media, just kind of listening to what other people were saying and not really participating, but always feeling that I too had thoughts and opinions about certain things. And it's like, well, why not? Like what's holding me back on putting it forward? And it's interesting because, you know, prior to uh, joining Relogix, you know, we've worked for large companies and it wasn't really something that the company really promoted or wanted you to do. They didn't want you to be on social media. And, you know, you always had kind of had the social media policies that you had to deal with. And so you had to be very cognizant of, you know, the image that you were portraying as an ambassador of that particular company. I don't know now if it's just because the switch has moved over into real estate, which has now exploded and everybody's curious about what to do, what not to do, how to think about real estate, how not to think about real estate, that there's a lot more conversation in that regard, but I'm still seeing that there's a lot more sort of select people that are much more vocal than what could be where you're really getting sort of uh, different angles from different people from all walks of life with respect to the companies in which they actually work. So I often think it's like, how cool would it be if, you know, people in actual employees in different companies, not necessarily in a real estate position could speak very freely about you know, their experiences and about the office and just certain things that they like or dislike, how much more real would the conversation actually be about the direction that the workplace should take? Yes, there's surveys. There's, I mean, everybody's surveying everybody and, you know, that sort of gives you a gauge, but really hearing it from, from an employee's perspective is, I think, really, really valuable. That's why I go to Reddit because Reddit is, you get it 
you know, yeah, the no unabridged kidding. version, right? <laughs> well, I will say that you are definitely one of the most insightful people that I follow. So I'm really glad that I was able to inspire you in some small way. Um, you speak with such strong data behind what you say. And um, I'll admit, actually, that the first time you came into the conversations I was having, you like made my like veins pop out of my forehead <laughs> a little bit because I, you know, you were saying things that, that didn't really I uh, didn't understand. And I, what I why I want to bring this up is I think that there are a lot of like little silos within the commercial real estate industry, despite the fact that a company such as CBRE has every single platform service under the sun. There's not nearly enough like cross pollination that's actually happening inside of organizations of a big size. You know, I'm not trying to single CBRE yet. I'm just saying it's it's just a byproduct of large organizations. Mm -hmm. And what I want to say to any brokers or anyone in the service side of the industry who might be listening to this podcast is that there's nothing more important than listening to people such as yourself who are not directly in the brokerage world. Because we are not in a position to be doing back of the napkin stuff anymore with customers. And what scares me actually is that customers often want to do back of the napkin stuff themselves because yeah. they don't really want to dive into the details too much. But we have a responsibility, especially in light of this revolution that's taking place and, you know, a lot of continued acknowledgements around the just dreadful stuff going on with climate change. Like we have a responsibility. And so I'm just doing my best to listen to people like you as much as I can and try and learn things that I don't understand. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I think it's true. I think that there's um, the, the whole back of the napkin calculation and who does that. And, you know, we hear uh, often, even in our world, the need for data, the need for technology and kind of is it really necessary because there's information that's out there that's good enough. And I think that there's definitely truth to that. And actually, just this morning, I was in a discussion on a post that I made about, you know, the need for uh, for technology to kind of give you sort of that very granular level of detail. And someone asked the question of, well, why do you even need that? Because you can get, you know, sort of high level metrics to get a sense of how space is being used. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But it really depends on, you know, what's your ultimate objective? And that's really where understanding what kind of data fits the bill is really important in, in terms of being able to drive the outcomes that ultimately the, the customer, which is the tenant in this case, are what they want, right? And for me, you know, I actually worked at CBRE for a number of years. I actually worked in the workplace strategy consulting arm of um, CBRE and, you know, having worked with um, brokers or not directly with brokers, but where, you know, you're working on a deal where there's a potential for a deal to close. And then there's the, the part of workplace strategy that comes in that says, okay, there's, you know, a million square feet, but the workplace strategy part maybe suggests that you don't need as much space. Then you get into a conflict because there's the brokerage deal, which is, hey, yeah, I want to... You're messing up my fee, Sandra. Yeah, Get out of exactly. the way. Get the hell exactly. out of the way. I'm trying to and make so money here. So it's like, you know, you, to be <laughs> part of that organization or basically to offer that service within the same organization sometimes almost creates a bit of a, a conflict of interest, right? Now, that was before the pandemic. I think now that probably has changed. I mean, I don't know how, you know, what you're seeing on, on your side, but, you know, because tenants are now coming to organizations like you guys to sort of help them figure out how much space do I actually need? Is that industry positioned to do to do that for for companies? Well, we are positioned to do it. I think we just need to actually like do it. Um, what I think is going to be really productive 
is the fact that companies have shone a light inside of their own cultures and workplaces to a far greater degree than they ever did in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And what that's resulting in is them being more prudent with who they actually choose as partners and service providers. And they're asking more questions and they're looking for people that have a beginner's mindset to the problem. I actually think that, you know, sophisticated customers that need brokerage services are more concerned with people who are willing to ask questions and not necessarily even know the answer than they are with those that really want to dictate terms to them and tell them what the answers are. Because the truth of the matter is there's no meaningful data at this point whatsoever. And um, in that regard, in general, whether it's the commercial real estate industry or, or otherwise, I think we need to pay attention to matching uh, more intuitive people with more data oriented people. And I think that th- that combination can really um, present such an amazing possibility for customers. So like I'm way more on the intuitive side. I used to be a poker player. And like when I was a poker player, we would use software that would literally track like granular levels of information around people's uh, behavior, like behaviors in the context of the game. And it would really help inform making decisions. But the problem with with relying solely on that approach is you become a bit of a robot and you say goodbye to that X factor that is being a human being, right? And there's a saying in this movie, um, Rounders, which is a poker movie. In, in short, it says sometimes it just comes down to feel what's in your guts. And I really think that we're at a moment right now where we need to actually pay attention to that feeling and what's in our guts and talk about it. Like, we don't have the data, but we need to talk about it. And I think that it's an excuse. You know, I hear a lot of people in my industry say things like, I'll believe in hybrid working when the data shows that people can be productive and engaged in a hybrid capacity. Until then, I don't give a shit, right? And I think that's just like, in the most good way, it's kicking the can down the road. And in a more unproductive way, it's like, I actually am just looking for the status quo to prevail because... It serves my status, it serves my financial compensation structure, it serves this, it serves that. And herein lies the biggest problem that the commercial real estate sector has, is that we have compensation structures, and even worse, that prevent us from wanting to change. Well, it's interesting what you say about, you know, the fact that there isn't data. And actually, there's, there's been some discussion on that this past week. I actually posted a poll in terms of asking people why companies are stuck, right? And so the, you know, the number one response is, you know, there's no data. And I, I sort of question that because being obviously on the technology side of real estate or CRE tech and being able to provision things like sensors and, you know, say, hey, you can put sensors in and really get a sense of how people are using space. You know, sometimes I sort of think, well, is that really necessary? Like, what if you, if, if people aren't coming into the office, which again, we heard that when the pandemic had started and, you know, the whole business basically was put on hold because if there's nobody in the office, why is anybody going to put sensors in? Um, but the reality is, is that there are other data sources that exist within an organization that even though you're not back a hundred percent, you know, there has been movement where people have for the last like six months, nine months have been returning to the office to some degree that similar to the argument that you made about poker, where you focus on the behavior. It's not so much focused on, okay, what's our occupancy looking like? Oh, we're at 20%, we're at 30%, but we don't know if it's going to get to 50 or it's going to get to 60. It's digging into that 
20 to 30% that are coming back to the office and trying to understand who is that user, right? It's bringing in information about what's their job function? Uh, you know, what teams do they belong to? When they're coming in, what is it that they're doing? Like, are there, are they meeting? Are they coming into work because maybe they don't have space at home? Uh, understanding the commuting patterns, right? So again, thinking about workplace um, initiatives where you try to understand, okay, you know, we have a certain percent of people that live within a 20-kilometer radius. If you now overlay that to your, you know, badging data, for example, then you can get a sense of the people who come into the office four days a week maybe live 10 kilometers or five kilometers away from the office versus the person who comes in once every two weeks lives 50 or 60 kilometers away. And so you start to then understand the supply and demand need much more deeply based on not just the behaviors, but the attributes that relate to the users of that space to start to think about, okay, if this is true for our entire organization, how do we start to rethink how we provision space to people and where should that space actually be? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the thing that I've been talking about since 2019 is that there's a mismatch of on the supply side. The supply just doesn't offer an asset that can can be purchased in short, medium, and long, all under one roof. It's starting to change. Um, you know, cool landlords like Ivanhoe Cambridge, led by innovative people like Jonathan Pierce, who's a friend of mine, are partnering up with the likes of WeWork mm-hmm. to be able to actually, in an intentional way, and as a lease-up and retention strategy, involve them at the asset level and see how they can provision to have spaces that are either fully communal or can be rented, you know, like let's just say a private suite for a company that's a a Series A startup or whatever uh, that needs, instead of uh, going out to the, you know, the the traditional market and leasing, let's say, 10,000 square feet, they could take 5,000 dedicated and then benefit from using conference space, meeting space, event space, you know, uh, hot desking through the co-working that's available in the building. Like, here is in lies of the problem, right? Like you're having customers like big, big tech firms that are starting. And this was pre-pandemic. I was working on a deal where a, a big tech company RFP'd a flex space operator prior to even going to a landlord to discuss growth in, in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And the reason they did that is they needed more space, but they only really had visibility on about 15,000 square feet of more space that they knew that they needed definitively. Over and above that amount, they were forecasting what they thought they needed. And they would finally said to themselves, like, this is crazy. Like, we go out there and we lease 80,000 square feet, 65,000 square feet of it sits dormant. We might even actually build it before anybody comes. And it just it doesn't make any sense. And so they were starting to try and solve some of their own flexibility issues by bringing in a third party operator. And when I was like kind of bearing witness to this as the service provider, I'm saying to myself, like, how much longer are these big customers going to manage all of their own flexibility and service issues themselves? Like they're starting to truly become self-aware because nobody was doing anything like that 10 years ago. Play the tape for another 10 years. Do you think that they're going to lease 80,000 square feet from a landlord just because mm-hmm. they think they might need it? Like there's yeah. a 0% chance. There's just no yeah. way. Yeah. And then, then you add that layers to this thing like, you know, these, the growth of marketplaces like Liquid Space or Upflex or Upsuite or, you know, there's a whole host of them that are just blowing up. Like you fast forward that tape another five to 10 years, these kinds of groups are not even just trying to supply space like Expedia. They're actually trying to become 
like consultants and effectively almost compete with brokers on some basis to be able to help customers understand utilization of their space and inform future strategy, right? So like this thing's getting completely turned on its head despite the fact that most landlords' portfolios are 95% leased right now and the average lease term in their portfolio is nine and a half years, it's a very easy way for them to just shut their eyes and ears off and then add to it like Amazon or Facebook taking more space and like basically this is their excuse to just never do anything, right? Because the sky is blue and everything's fine. It's not. The sky is gray. <laughs> and I don't know what's that saying, like like there will be darkness before the spring. I don't know what it is, but it's like before the new beginning of going to work, there's going to be some really stormy clouds. And I don't think those stormy clouds have really even reared their head yet. So it's interesting what you what you just described because I think that there's definitely a lot more movement in the flex space, at least whether it's because we're paying attention to it more now, but I think it's just generally there is just a lot more interest and movement in that um, area. But I think the burning question for most companies who are currently in space that they're leasing is what do they do? Like you have these options that are available to you that provide flexibility so that you're not committed to something longer term. But let's say you're, you know, if the average lease is, let's say, 10 years and you're three years or five years or six years into it and you still have four years to go, you know, is there is there an option or is there an out or is there, you know, something in the works on the on the brokerage side or from a, a landlord side to help transition to something more flexible? Like how far away is something like that where you're not, no, you're tied into it for the next, you know, five years, 10 years and too bad, right? <laughs> well, you know, you hear a lot of like consultants provide good insights to customers and say like, hey, why don't you band together within the building and, you know, put more pressure on the owner to take some of the space that you have and maybe pool it together and turn it into common space that like you'll contribute a portion of the revenue towards, but not, you know, entirely like you are right now and deal with like, you know, major poor utilization issues. The problem is landlords are completely unmotivated to do this. And it's for a variety of reasons. One is that their customer is not really their customer. Their customer are lenders. Their customer are LPs. Their customers are brokers. Like these are the people that they care more about interactions with and have ongoing like active relationships with than those that they sign a lease with. They care greatly about that customer when that customer's on the street looking for space and they wind and dine the shit out of them during that phase. But as soon as the 10-year lease is signed, it's like set it and forget it. So that's a mindset problem that mm-hmm. is starting to shift, but it's still really like, I'd call it it's an epidemic of its own. Um, but, but then there's structural issues. And the structural issues are how the industry values its its properties and how it's you know seeking lending and and those kinds of things there's that's all structured on long-term leases with credible you know financially strong tenants like that's the issue that fundamentally needs to shift in order for landlords to be able to more freely shift the supply because I think customers are going to get creative and try to find ways to solve for these problems that you bring up that are very real problems but I think that they're going to come up short in a lot of in a lot of capacities. And also, we have to remember, they have their own businesses to run, right? Like in a, in a lot of cases, it's going to be easier for a customer to just like write off the poor utilization or write off the lease and just like wait till it expires and deal with right. it then. And that's an unfortunate reality, right? 
But what I would be doing if I was a landlord is I would be calling every single tenant in my building and portfolio. I would be trying to get a real sense of whether they were likely to renew that lease or not. And if they were not, I would be proactively trying to figure out large blocks of space that I could get control of and turn it into this full stack commercial real estate product that from the minute you walk in the door, you have activated amenities, activated meeting space, activated um, like everything, right? Because that's the other issue is that landlords go and they design these amenities, but they're not in the hotel business for sort of a simple analogy. And so these spaces are not activated properly and nobody uses them and they become like they basically become operating expense write-offs for companies. They're contributing to something that they don't use. Right. And then layer on like what blows my mind about the traditional leasing model is you get companies coming in, building up these Taj Mahals, and then the lease expires and it gets torn down because it's just not universally applicable. And I think that like we look to every other area of, of our world and like there are sharing economies that are exploding everywhere And I think you need to follow the younger companies to see where the trend line is headed. Younger companies are willing to give up personalization and even privacy for more flexibility and more service. And so, like, imagine the world we're going to live in when Gen Zs are running companies, like running them. Like, these are people that everything is in their pocket. Like, everything Mm -hmm. is on this device. Yeah. Do you think they're going to, like, they're going to be like, 10-year lease? What? Why? (laughs) What? Like, sorry, that doesn't work for me. Oh, you know what? I'll just like take no office. Like we'll rent an Airbnb. We'll do this. We'll do that. Like young companies will get so much more creative with how they congregate. And like, you know, I think the next 10 years is just going to be highly transformative. It, but it, real estate's really frustrating in the sense that it takes so long for anything meaningful to happen. But I would ascertain that if you were to compare the last 50 years to the next 10, I strongly believe it will look very different. Different. I, I agree with you there. Um, so you, you've said a lot of things in in the last couple of minutes. Um, when you're talking about amenities, because um, this is something that I often grapple with, is that, you know, do you believe that there is anything that a tenant or even a landlord for that matter, maybe more so from the landlord perspective, can do uh, to entice people to want to come back to a building? It's kind of funny. Like, it's actually, like, kind of laughable when you really think about it. Because the answer is yes, but I'll, like, make fun of it and poke light at it first. I, I made a post, like, last week or the week before that I said um, there's no office amenity more valuable than the choice to go there or not. That is the most profound amenity that a knowledge worker can actually have. I believe that. I don't know if you believe it. Do you believe it? Or yeah, absolutely. Don't challenge me. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Okay. So if we believe that, then all of these fancy amenities are far less relevant than that. And again, I'll draw on my poker background. It really didn't matter how quality the space was that we chose to actually physically interact in. What mattered was that the right brains were in the room doing something that needed to be done in person. It's really that simple. And we had the appropriate technology. And if the technology wasn't working, then we had a problem, right? So I would actually argue that technology is like the fundamental, most important thing for those interactions. And then other than that, it's the right people being in the room and wanting to be there together. So, yes, I think the hotelification of the office is a real thing. 
and it is coming and it's going to happen, but it is just not even close to as relevant as the right people being in the room and having the choice to be there or not. Yeah, and I, I agree with that because I've been thinking recently about, you know, what is the difference between an amenity provided by a hotel versus, you know, a company or an office that's providing a similar experience, a similar amenity? And really the difference is, is that the hotel's business is based on the service. You need a hotel if you're traveling away from home. It's a place to stay, you know, which they have obviously their competition from an experience perspective with the Airbnbs of the world. It's a completely different experience. And you make that decision of do I want a hotel experience or do I want an Airbnb um, experience? But what I think is interesting about amenities and I, I similar to like what you said is it is laughable because I, I look at it a little bit differently. I look at it from the standpoint of you know, when I go into an organization and I, I start asking questions about, okay, you know, what are your corporate objectives? You look at their annual report if they're a public company. You know, people have, you know, they have talent attraction and retention, their sustainability, community building, kind of all of these things that virtually everybody, every company has in their, in their annual reports. And then you look at, you know, um, the services and the amenities that often the tenants will build. So a lot of companies I mean, years ago, you know, having a gym in the office wasn't necessarily something that most companies offered. Few, few did. And you had sort of a difference between whether you were using that amenity during office hours. Uh, a lot of companies frowned upon it. It was you use it before work on your lunch hour or after work, which was like, well, kind of defeats the purpose of having the amenity. Um and so when that became more mainstream, then I started to look at it from the standpoint of, okay, you care about sustainability. So let's just bear with me for a second. So you care about sustainability. You have an office that's located in downtown Toronto that you're forcing everybody to commute, drive into the city to work. Uh, and in the case where a company maybe does offer flexibility, which now this is forward looking because, again, I worked at a company where you did have that option, but they offered the amenities to try to entice people to come into the office, it's mm -hmm. kind of counterintuitive to say, okay, if you care about my health or you care about sustainability, then give me uh, an allowance that I can then join a gym in my community that I can go to that's five minutes away so that I'm not commuting, I'm not coming you know, down to the office just to use the gym that you're offering me. It's going to cost you probably the same amount of money. Actually, it might save you some money because most people don't even take advantage of these programs is that companies will make have budget allowance, but usually it's like less than 20 or 30 percent of people who actually use the money to participate in these programs. But it's a win win. Right. Is that you can still be flexible and you can still care about my health, but you're giving me the choice versus putting it everything in a building and making the building the center of of everything. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I've always struggled is to say, well, yeah, you could put hotel-like amenities, you could put, you know, cafes and lounges and restaurants and whatever. But to your point, it's it's not about the place, the beautification of the place. It's the brains that are coming together and wherever it is that they're coming together to do what it is that they need to do. Yeah, 100%. I think that why you would probably see that there are WeWorks that are more occupied than traditional offices right now, taking aside for a moment the fact that the, the actual financial contribution is more flexible and whatever, um, is really that there is a brand that stands for something that those that go there believe in. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a key piece, that if you're going to be hotelifying the office, 
It has to stand for something. And I think that increasingly what we'll see is that rather than buildings being a complete random like selection of tenants that are there for no reason other than that the location matches the location that they'd like to be in, you may see, and maybe there are actually some dark sides to this, you may see these buildings start to look more homogenous in that the people that are in there stand for the same things. And Dror Pollock's talked about this kind of stuff at length, notably how remote work could actually create community silos that are not very diverse. And perhaps we really are moving into that kind of a, a world. And, and I, again, I'm too, I'm too naive to be able to really comment on the implications of it all. But I think that that's really key is that right now, landlords don't really have consumer facing brands. Nobody can tell you who owns the building. No employee <laughs> of like 145 King Street where I'm at can tell you that Quadril is the owner of the building. They have no right. idea and they don't care and they don't care because there's no reason to care. So that's definitely got to change. But additionally, like, you know, when I go back to my poker example, what I think structurally needs to happen, and this is more like at the organizational level, and it will influence real estate by it happening, is that when we played poker, we had all of the infrastructure in place that we needed to do the thing that we wanted to do, which is play the game. So we had the software that we could play the game on. And then we had things like Skype and messaging forums where we could communicate with each other either synchronously or asynchronously to learn the game and, and, and build community, right? And so it was a very much a digitally first kind of approach to, to the way things were done. And what actually happened was that there was no mandates of any kind. It was just that the infrastructure was there to use, and it was very grassroots how the collaboration happened and who it happened with. And I'm very much a believer that this is, organizationally speaking, the direction that companies need to move in. And if they move in that direction, it's not really going to matter so much if they have, like, all this sexy stuff in their space. Sure, it'll be great if they could have it. But more importantly, it will be a structure that gets the right people in the room for the right reasons at the right time. And then you adjust your real estate strategy around that. Around it. It's funny that you you mentioned um, Drawer um, because... I was going to say the same thing is I know in one of the sessions or one of the early sessions I took, I took the Real Innovation Academy course, which I think you did as well. Yeah. And yeah, sure. in one of the sessions that we had, we had a breakout and there was a question around, you know, if you could have an opportunity to meet with anybody that you or talk to anybody that you wanted to, uh, dead or alive, you know, who would it be? And it was kind of sort of geared still around the office setting. And it was interesting and fascinating, actually, the answers that you got that had nothing to do with people in the organization. It was, you know, artists or people that were inspired by musicians or, you know, uh, whatever. It, it could be from any walk of life. And what was interesting for me was that I experienced the WeWork environment when I left corporate uh, and I did my own startup several years ago and didn't have an office. So I was a nomad for a couple of years and, um, you know, opted to go in and work in these these co-working spaces. And the first thing that jumped out at me was how different the communication and the ability to connect with like minded people from different companies was, which was not what the experience was in the corporate world and how much more valuable that was from a learning perspective. And so when I think about WeWork and kind of the success, depending on what, you know, how you define, how you define it, yeah, success how you define of WeWork, right, yeah. is, is this whole concept of community, 
right? And, and kind of how they build the community and sort of the, you know, in the early days, I remember they would bring like, you know, guest speakers in and try to bring people in with different sort of interests so that you could, you know, uh, rub shoulders with people from companies that maybe you wanted to, you know, to learn a little bit more about. And I think often about, you know, how valuable would that be for people that are in the corporate space? I mean, for years, companies have been very particular about not cross-pollinating with other companies because there's um, intellectual property and security and this and that, exactly. But the learning aspect of and just kind of how you innovate and how you grow and, and ideas that you generate, you know, have to involve conversations and experiences outside of the organization. And so I think that kind of experience, I think, is extremely valuable for companies to be able to to move forward. Yeah. Well, and then, like, you know, imagine instead of it being we work directly, at least the landlord had a stake in the game. Right. And the issue, again, comes back to like a couple of things. Like I remember the beginning of the pandemic. We were ta- I was talking a lot about how the onus can't just rest anymore on all of these companies to deliver a great experience for their employees. And the the prevailing sentiment from the landlord community at the time, and I expect in many regards is still the prevailing sentiment, is that that's not our job. Our job is to find a great piece of dirt, erect a building or buy one, you know, deliver the four walls, and then the rest is your responsibility. And that's a mindset problem, but part of it is, again, tied to the financial compensation structure and the level of effort and the lack of understanding, right? Like when you think of like these community spaces that you've just, you've just discussed, it's a landlord's worst nightmare. It's short-term purchasing behaviors, high levels of activation, right, and having to d- deliver active service. Like you have to actually be more like a hotel concierge then you are sort of an asset manager. And this is literally their worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. And herein lies the problem, right? Is This is what's needed. This is what is desired. This is what's going to keep these buildings full because, you know, a rock climbing gym, someone made a comment in one of my posts the other day that was like putting a rock climbing gym in a 10,000 square, square meter facility in Saskatoon is not going to fill the building, right? And they're dead right. It's not going to fill the building. But community and real human connection might (laughs) right so it's less about the spatial design and more about the programming so on a completely different tangent do you think technology can solve the challenges that are being faced by by landlords and building building owners like just being able to get a better understanding of on what's actually taking place in the building so understanding the behaviors understanding who the users are. I mean, you said at the beginning is that, you know, their interest is really, you know, hasn't really necessarily been the tenant other than when they're looking for space. But now it's if you're trying to stay alive, for for lack of a better word, you need to kind of have a sense of what's happening in your in your building. And so do you think technology could solve for that to alert tenants on like what's actually taking place at sort of at that level where they can be more proactive with how they're dealing with or how they're going to interact with their tenants that maybe they didn't have to before. In, in a very short answer, I would say yes, but it's very important to not romanticize it. I think either, right? Um, the companies want a couple things. They want to be able to flex their space up and down inside of a building that they're in or in a, in a building that's close by. 
And they're not like naive to the fact that this is a physical product. And so it can't be as nimble as a technology software service that they purchase. Like they get that. But what they'll say is that it really is solely my problem, right? Like if my mm-hmm. needs change, I've got to sublease the space, which is really inconvenient. It, it involves like me taking the reins on like dealing with that transaction, dealing with all the stuff related to relocating myself and blah, blah, blah. And it's going to take time and I'm going to lose money and blah, blah, blah. But so, so if a landlord actually had an asset that was basically better set up to allow people to go up and down, up and down, up and down, right? And that's building spaces that are universally workable, right? And interconnected and well thought out, not like, oh, our, our flex space is sort of an afterthought, right? That we'll deal with at the end once we get 90% of the building leased traditionally. Right. And hopefully we get it all leased traditionally so that we don't have to worry about it, right? Like, if they can get rid of that and actually deliver what customers want, I think they'll be surprised in a good way that they'll be commanding premiums for that real estate and it'll just change hands. Like the vacancy will not be as strong as, as they or as, as potentially profound as they think it will be. Mm-hmm. So that's one big problem that they care about. And then the other one is actually new market entries. Like they would love it if their landlord could go on the road with them. And to me, the only way that can happen is if the landlord has an operating platform within their their sort of suite of services that they can actually transact outside of their own footprint. That's the only way that that will happen. So those are like the main issues that companies are trying to deal with. And then beyond that, you know, like, yeah, you got to design the right kinds of spaces, but like it's, we were talking about this now the third time, like it's just the, the sex factor, the sexy factor of space is just like not nearly as important as the right brains being in there and wanting to be there and like pretty basic, the kind of stuff you need to make that happen. Yeah. So companies, we're seeing like, you know, every day, you know, there's posts by all kinds of organizations, some that are sort of, uh, you know, taking the bull by the horns and making decisions on being, you know, remote first. Others are mandating their return to office, you know, and some are just not doing anything at all right now. And they're just most, most. waiting to see what's going to what's going to happen. Why do you think that this is the case? If I were to generalize, I think it has a lot to do with the amount of time that the organization has been in business and even really what they do and how that came to be in the first place. Right. Like take a company like Dropbox, like they're just on the leading edge and they're a cloud software company. Like, of course, they're not going to like romanticize where their work happens. Right. So they're just willing to look at this problem with a completely beginner's mindset, right? Then you've got Salesforce. They're, they're one of the most inclusive, you know, large employers in the world. And they're willing to say things like, um, we'll put, they'll, they'll put everything before where work happens, like what and why and how come before where, right? Like what a, what a great statement. That to me suggests that they trust their people, that they recognize that no one location is a silver bullet, and they're going to do whatever they need to do to make their people productive. And if 25% of them never want to go into the office again, they'll facilitate that. If 60% of them want to go in there on a you know very fluid basis, they'll facilitate that. And then on the flip side, you've got these you know what I'll call legacy companies, and I'm calling them that just because they've been around for a long time. But there is also a correlation to their relevancy in the in the market, <laughs> and they've been led typically by white males who are used to ruling from their castles. And so when you combine all of those forces together, it's not surprising that you'll hear those types of folks 
say we need to get people back to work. It's like, dude, we've been working. Like exactly. your 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 definition of work is not what work is. Like work's not a place, culture's not a place, right? But they don't see it this way. And you know, for some it's a it's an easy slip because like, you know, it's natural to suggest you would say like we're going I'm going to work. We've all been saying that for decades. I'm going to work. We have we did. We went to work. But work we've now realized work's not a place. And this is what the smartest organizations in the world understand, and they're building a workplace strategy around that. I completely concur with what with what you're saying. Um, well, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for your insights. Any final comments? No, you let me drop the mic with that last one. So I'm good. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you.